I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're taking a deep dive into the world of killer whales, plus fun facts about genetic testing. <laughs> I also, of course, we're going to share one of our fun stories of uh, seeing killer whales in the wild. So get comfy, because it's going to be a killer of an episode. So as you listen to this episode, we are wrapping up June, which is Orca Awareness Month. Uh, this was started in the Salish Sea in 2006 to bring awareness to the southern resident killer whales and their endangered population numbers. Personally, I like to use it, uh, especially on our social media, to bring awareness to all the different types of killer whales in the world, which we are going to get into uh, in this episode. Um, but it is also used uh, in person for events in Washington, as well as other parts of the Salish Sea. Uh, to bring awareness um, in events and parades and I think a 5k and there's definitely an orca shaped cake somewhere um, just to learn more about orcas and what you can do to help them. Um, so even though June is pretty much over now that you're listening to this, hopefully you enjoyed it and are ready for next year. Uh, you may have noticed that we are using orca and killer whale interchangeably when we're talking about these animals. Um, killer whale is a name that's recognized in Canada as a scientific name, or Sinius orca is the Latin name for the whales. If you are wondering about why we do use these interchangeably, we're not going to talk about it here, but you can go to our website and read our Naming of Things blog, uh, Killer Whale or Orca. Uh, you can just check it out on our site, as well as all our other Naming of Thing blogs and all of our stories. So, Nicole? It's awesome. It makes me very happy, as all nerdy language things do. Um, so, a little bit about the basics of killer whales. Killer whales are a species of dolphin. I know, it's confusing. Um, in that they are in the group of toothed whales, and then they are in the subgroup of that being dolphins. Um check out our first episode to hear more about uh, different types of whales. So killer whales are very, it's referred to as cosmopolitan. They're found in all the oceans and pretty much all the seas. Um, so they fancy have, they are. So, <laughs> so fancy. Um, they are the largest species of dolphin and they, uh, as you probably know, are colored uh, black and white patterns with a large dorsal fin and have really neat black and white distinctive patterning that is used to distinguish between individuals and then also the sort of more uh, gross differences in their coloration can be used to tell the difference between different populations of killer whales. Um, in terms of habitat, they obviously live in the oceans, but <laughs> they generally prefer higher latitudes versus um, equatorial latitudes and more coastal areas over pelagic areas. I mean, they're found everywhere, but in terms of uh, larger populations and more regular occurrences, they are found um, in those kinds of places. They are, like all whales, carnivores. Uh, different populations eat lots of different things, and uh, I think we'll cover that a bit more later. Worldwide populations are pretty hard to understand. There's some populations that are really well studied, and other populations like the Antarctic populations that are less well studied because it's Antarctica. Um, but the estimate is that there's at least about 50,000 individuals. Uh, this is from 2006. Um, not going to be a huge change in that. In their uh, environments, they are considered apex predators, meaning that they don't have any natural predators. Um, 
they tend to be congregated in groups and um, have a really strong social structure. Uh, whales, killer whales will stay with their um, pod or like their maternal matrilineal group. So they stay with their mothers and then the males from that group uh, will mate with females from other groups to um, reduce inbreeding. Gestation in killer whales is about 15 to 18 months, and most females will have a calf about every five-ish years. Um, killer whales, when they're born, are about two point two and a half meters long, roughly, and they tend to be uh, a bit orangey, yellowy colored, which is kind of interesting. And um, adorable. Yes, and very cute. And like all whales, they nurse from their mothers uh, from day one. And um, because of their social structure, end up having a very strong bond with their mother. Um, and then lots of... So I think one of the neatest things for me about uh, killer whales is the huge variety in different populations of killer whales. So Nicole's going to talk a little bit about all these different populations. There are so many. And like Sarah said, there are some that are very, very well studied. And then there are some that are the opposite. So in total, there's this really, really depends, again, on which scientists you speak to. But generally speaking, there are 10 different ecotypes or populations of killer whales that are recognized worldwide. Uh, some people would say there's a lot more than that. And I'm sure that the longer these animals are studied, the more we will discover. But generally, what an ecotype means is there's 10 different distinct populations of killer whales that have different social structures, different diets, different uh, habits, and different geographic locations. Some of those locations may overlap with each other, but the animals themselves within those ecotypes do not interact with the other orcas in other ecotypes. Uh, they are like the jets and the sharks. They just don't <laughs> hang out with each other. <laughs> but they also don't snap and sing at each other either. So. <laughs> um, the best studied are the resident killer whales found here in British Columbia. Um, this is why I'm saying that different people would tell you there's more than 11 ecotypes, because for those of us here in BC who spend a lot of time studying these animals, we know that there's two very different groups of residents. There's the northern residents and the southern residents. Um, but worldwide, they're considered just the same. They're just the residents. And regardless of whether you're talking about the northern residents or the southern residents, these animals tend to be kind of averagely sized killer whales. They're usually growing up to about 7.2 meters long. They're found in the North Pacific. They spend most of their time around coastal areas. Uh, and these are the salmon eaters. So these are the specifically Chinook salmon is their favorite salmon. They will eat other species of salmon sometimes. That's part of the problem with this population is they're very, very, very picky eaters. Um, and these are, like you were saying, Sarah, the killer whales that do absolutely stay with mom. They're 
whole lives. They're big mama's boys or mama's girls. Um, and they're usually in very distinct groups that we can tell apart because we know the whole family. They're spending all their time with their moms. Uh, and so they're called matrilines because mom is in charge or grandma or great grandma in a couple of cases. So that's the residence. Every other group of killer whales or every other ecotype uh, we know about because of how well studied the residents are. Uh, and so they're all kind of compared to those residents. Uh, the next best studied ecotype is the transients that now known as the Biggs killer whales named after Dr. Michael Big, who we'll be talking a little bit about later. Um, and they transit through more than reside. These are terrible names, in all honesty, <laughs> because the resident orca don't actually spend their whole lives or even their whole year in one particular place of residence <laughs> in the ocean. They do migrate actually quite a lot, sometimes all the way from northern British Columbia down to southern California. So, but when these names were given to them, it wasn't well known <laughs> what they were doing. Um, and the transients were thought to be more transient, uh, so that's how they got their name. But now they're called bigs, and they are bigger than the residents on average. They tend to be about eight meters long or so. Males are always bigger than females, even though the females are in charge. Um, there also are some very minute but important color differentiations between these different ecotypes. For example, the Biggs killer whales, at least from everything that we know, the gray patch behind their dorsal fin, which is called a saddle patch, uh, they never have open ones, which uh, if you see a lot of pictures of some of the resident killer whales, their saddle patches can be big open Vs, like almost like a check mark somebody drew on the back of these animals on their backs, <laughs> almost like a check mark that someone drew on their backs. Uh, that never happens with any of the big killer whales. Their dorsal fins tend to be more triangular in shape, though if you just see a killer whale and you don't have another one right next to it to compare that to, that's not going to mean anything <laughs> to you. Same with the fact that their dorsal fins tend to be sharper. They're not usually rounded at the tips. These are all really, really hard unless you look at pictures. <laughs> um, they are found in the North Pacific as well. Their territory does overlap with that of the residents, um, but they don't interact with each other. And if you see residents off the coast of Saturn Island, as we've spoken about in our previous episode, uh, one day you are just as likely to see transients or bigs there the next day. Uh, but you wouldn't see them at the same time. The Biggs killer whales are mammal eaters. They eat harbor porpoises and harbor seals and sea lions and all manner of whales, including and up to the biggest, the blue whale. They're awesome. So they do spend time in coastal waters as well as traveling further offshore. And their social groups are a lot smaller, typically. Not all the time. There's no hard and fast rules in the orca world or in biology in general. Um, but what you were saying, Sarah, about how they always spend their lives with their moms, with bigs, sometimes that's true. And sometimes if mom's family gets a little bit too big to be stealthy to sneak up on a whale, at least that's what we think, then 
whoever the older sisters are, if they've had kids of their own by this point, they may break off and form their own group. And sometimes even males actually form their own kind of like bro teams. (laughs) Um, So we're not really sure why that happens with bigs uh, and it doesn't happen often, but there are some, some stranger groupings going on there. So those are, there's a lot to take in, but those are also the two groups that we know the most about by far. Um, so the rest of this is going to be, for me, it's always really interesting to get into the other eight ecotypes because they're so mysterious and kind of sexy in that way. And it's also <laughs> like my dream to go to Antarctica and study these animals. Well, they're like, they're foreign and yeah, exotic. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, There's one of these exotic ecotypes actually here in our home waters, though none of the three of us or really almost anyone that we know has ever seen them because they're called the offshore orcas. And that name is appropriate because they are found way, 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 way offshore in the North Pacific Ocean, all the way over the continental shelf, actually. So super deep water, super big ocean. It's not like the Pacific is, you know, something you could look across. (laughs) And uh, they're really, really, really hard to find. But they are also uh, really, really cool because they're smaller than either the residents or the bigs orcas. They're usually only about 6.7 meters long. uh, And they prey on at least what's thought to be a lot of different big fish, but the number one part of their diet is thought to be sharks, which is awesome. We know this because uh, from bodies of offshore killer whales that have washed onshore, their teeth have been almost entirely worn down. And this is likely due to hunting sharks and trying to bite through the very, very rough skin that sharks have made of dentricles, which are basically teeth all over a shark's body because they don't have enough in their mouths. Offshores also travel in huge groups. There are usually no less than 50 of them at a time. So I couldn't find good estimates of how many offshores there are, uh, but they're usually seen in groups of 50 to 100. So that's a lot. Yeah, that would be an intense group of orcas to see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Plus they're way <laughs> offshore. You'd be like, oh. Yeah. Oh. That, yeah. Well, yeah. Sarah <laughs> and I will sure. never, will never see them because we can't go offshore without. <laughs> the the seasick marine biologists don't get to see the offshores. Okay, so in the northern hemisphere, those are the three ecotypes found in the Pacific. But still staying in the northern hemisphere, there are two other ecotypes found in the Atlantic Ocean, and unoriginally, these are called the type ones and the type twos. <laughs> In fact, the North Pacific orca are really the only ones that have, uh, I don't know, inaccurate but still interesting names. Everybody else is type A, B, C, D, or type 1 and 2. So in the North Atlantic, uh, specifically the Northeastern Atlantic, usually you don't tend to see them in the West Atlantic, but again, they can kind of go wherever they want. 
the type ones are also small-ish for a big animal. They're 6.6 meters long and they're found around Scotland, Iceland, and Norway. These are generalist hunters. Uh, there may be different populations. They're not very well studied, definitely not as well studied as the ecotypes we find in the North Pacific. So we're not really sure if different families, if they're even are families. We don't 100% know that they spend their lives with their moms like we know for the residents and for many of the bigs. They have been seen feeding on herring, mackerel, some other kinds of fish, and seals. So it's possible that different families prey on different things or different communities do, but we don't know. There is some research being done on these animals though. It started uh, about five to ten years ago and uh, hopefully we'll know more soon. Alright, so that's type 1. Type 2 in the North Atlantic are all thought to be cetacean eaters. They especially uh, have been seen preying on minke whales and some other kinds of whales, and they are really big. They're bigger than any of the other ecotypes we've talked about so far. Uh, they can grow up to eight and a half meters long, and they have a very distinct eye patch throughout the whole population. Their eye patch slants down towards their lower jaw always. Um, so that's something that if you do ever see a picture, if one of them spy hopping where their head comes out of the water, you could actually use that as a way of telling what ecotype you're looking at. Um, they're really, really big, probably to help them with eating really big whales. But that's the extent of what we know about them. They're found in the North Atlantic, they eat whales, they're big with cool eye patches. <laughs> then we travel into the Southern Hemisphere, and this is probably the overall group of orca that I'm most interested in because we know very little about them, but what we do know is really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, they travel huge distances. Whereas the Northern Hemisphere orca tend to stick pretty close to either their coastal zone or their part of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean, the Southern Hemisphere orca travel everywhere. They can be in the Galapagos Islands and then they can be in Antarctica. So they're really far roaming and they have some super cool predatory techniques. Uh, so we'll start with the first type, type A, also just known as the Antarctic killer whale. These are the biggest ecotype of killer whale. They can grow to be a whopping nine and a half meters long. Lord! They're huge for an already very, very big animal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're a full meter longer than the biggest ecotype we've talked about so far. Yeah, And for those of us, because we know that a lot of our listeners are uh, very familiar with the residents here in British Columbia, they're over two meters longer than them. Jeez. Yeah, that's a lot of killer whales. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, these are the killer whales that you find. Uh, they do go all over the southern hemisphere. Um, they avoid pack ice, though. So they're found in open parts of the southern either Pacific or Atlantic or even the Indian Ocean. They kind of go all over the place, um, but they won't ever be found where there's ice. They are eating anything that they can find in those ice-free waters, but probably the most famous group of the type A killer whales are the ones that you see in Patagonia off the side of Argentina, and they can go up onto the beach, they surf in with the waves, 
to snatch young, unexpecting, poor, innocent sea lion pups right out of their mother's paws. Oh man, let's go there because we can be on land so we won't be seasick. (laughs) Yeah, but we need to be like on a cliff above said beach because that sounds scary. (laughs) Yeah, true. But also, isn't Argentina where our friend did that uh, bicycle wine tour? Yes, through Argentina, is. which sounds dangerous, but also <laughs> awesome at the same time. So I think that's a great trip. There there are tours where you can actually go and see this from land. Uh, and from the research that I was doing, there are no in-water tours, which is probably smart. Oh, no, I wouldn't want to do that. Nope. Um, but I'll put it in the show notes. But there's a really cool paper that was published uh, from researchers in Argentina who are trying to put together the first photo ID catalog for any Southern Hemisphere ecotype, but specifically focused on the type A's. And it cataloged over 150 different animals. Awesome. That's really, really cool. And it was a really great paper to read. And it included all the photos, which is great. Sweet. (laughs) Um, These type A's are usually found in smaller groups of three to eight animals. Though sometimes what was really cool about that paper is it actually listed the number of animals that were in each sighting. And there was one that I noticed that had over 50. So it was a big super pod of type A Antarctic killer whales. Um, And it's just really, really cool to think about these animals that can eat, uh, obviously, seals and sea lions from the beach. They've also been seen eating minke whales and elephant seals and pretty much anything because they're huge. (laughs) So they could eat whatever they wanted. Which makes it so much crazier that they bit on the beach. Like nine and a half meters of whale up on a beach and then they just wiggle themselves back down. Like, that's insane. And that whole hunting strategy is... It really an example of how smart these animals are because yeah. it started not that long ago. It was less than, I want to say 25 years ago that the first time that was ever seen was seen. And it was, it started with two males and they were just, I, I don't know, showing off and they're like, Oh, look what mm. I can do. I can go on the hungry. beach and get back. <laughs> and they were hungry because they're giant. Um, and then in the most recent thing I could find online, they have those two males have taught that behavior to now over a dozen individuals so cool so the type a's are pretty cool as are the large type b's that's right there are two type b (laughs) ecotypes the large type b's and the small type b's but what was really interesting is i couldn't find a size for either of them so i guess type b's are just bigger and type bees are just smaller and whichever one you are you're either a large or a small (laughs) (laughs) another name for the large type bees is the pack ice orca and that will give you a good idea of what it is that they eat these are the animals that you've seen on no (laughs) the things that are on the ice and they use the ice to hunt these are the killer whales that you've seen in pretty much every killer whale documentary where they want to show you how cool they are they work together to create a wave to wash seals off the ice into a waiting mouth. <laughs> yeah. That's smart. Very, very, very smart. So from everything we know, the large type B pack ice killer whales, it's a lot of names, <laughs> the large type Bs um, are exclusively seal hunters, but there's no way to know that for sure. They're just not well studied enough to know that, um, but that's all they've ever been seen eating. They also have a very different 
color pattern to almost every other ecotype, they're gray and white. They're not black and white. And even on top of that gray coloration, they sometimes look yellow because they have diatoms or a form of algae growing all over their body. They also have a distinct saddle patch, which isn't just behind their dorsal fin, it covers their whole back and it's called a cape. They're like superheroes eating seals. <laughs> Except the cape is like more in front of their dorsal fin. It, it goes like, in it's front. Not behind. It yeah. does go in front, but then it kind of curves around the dorsal fin and then turns into a sort of traditional saddle patch. Um, and they also have giant eye patches. Like someone took a huge paint roller and just kind of went behind their eye with a big splash of white. These small type B killer whales are also called, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but the gurlashi, or maybe gurlash, or maybe jurlash. I don't know. It's a name for a strait down in Antarctica, so I don't know what language it's supposed to be in, or what the pronunciation is, but we're going to go with gurlash, because that's what I see when I look at it. The gurlash orca, or the small type Bs, are smaller than the large type Bs, but have all the same otherwise color patterns they're gray and white big dorsal cape big eye patch sometimes yellow uh, and these are the orca that sometimes prey on penguins and they're usually found in and around the antarctic peninsula where there are large colonies of penguins the ninth and almost final type of ecotype <laughs> is the type seas and they're also called the ross sea orcas because they are found in the Ross Sea, which is in the eastern Antarctic. They are like the type Bs, both large and small. They are gray and white, and they are the smallest ecotype of killer whale. They are six meters. Oh, just a little six compared to that 9.5 type A. <laughs> Um, they have a dorsal cape as well. It's typically gray, and just like the small and large type Bs, they're also yellow. They have diatoms on their body. But unlike both type Bs, they have very narrow eye patches. They tend to stick around pack ice in the eastern Antarctic, and they're thought to be fish eaters. But again, they could be eating penguins in their spare time, and we just didn't know it. Finally, the type Ds. My favorite ecotype... They're so cool looking um, and they're extremely rare. There have only been about 12 sightings of them. Again, I don't know who the people are who are doing those sightings. So there, there might be, you know, just a person living down there. So I see the type D's all the time. It's a lot of um, fishermen and stuff um, that have seen them, which is why they don't, which is why a lot of the reports that came out this um, this past couple of months were like new species seen for first time and which was totally wrong because yeah. we always knew about them yeah um, they they wash up and all this stuff but because this is like the second time scientists have seen them mm. um that's why that was reported like that but scientists ah. have always known that they are there yeah absolutely I remember seeing a very like sketched picture like an illustration of them, mm -hmm. I don't know, when I was 15, maybe, and thinking, that is a really cool-looking orca. <laughs> yeah, they're so weird-looking. Yeah. They also have the most distinct bodies of any ecotype. So unlike all other nine ecotypes, they actually have a round head instead of sort of a more torpedo-shaped or coming-to-a-point head. Their rostrum area is quite blunt and rounded. They have the teeniest, tiniest eye patch 
ever. Barely there. Um, they're back to black and white. So unlike the type Bs and Cs, they are distinctly black and white and they have no diatoms on their body. And they're not found very far south. It took me a second because we're talking about the southern hemisphere. Um, but they don't go all the way down to the true Antarctic. They're typically found north of 60 degrees south. That's a weird way of thinking when you live in the Northern Hemisphere. But these are the group that you would find around New Zealand, Chile, the Galapagos Islands, um, and pretty much any other small, sometimes some small Caribbean islands have killer whales that are spotted there at random times of year. And this would likely be them. They were first described by scientists in the 1950s because there was actually a mass stranding of them in New Zealand. So that's kind of mm. cool. And they're thought yeah. to eat fish. But again, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? So, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> so that's a question I have, and uh, obviously if you don't have this answer, but like we know that there are killer whales in New Zealand who eat stingrays, and we know that there are lots of killer whales in all over um, Australia, on both sides of Australia. Um, do we know, like, those, like, the killer whales who eat stingrays in New Zealand are obviously not type Ds. Do we know who they are? They're type As. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but yeah. Yeah, most of the ones that we would know about um, from New Zealand and Australia would be type As. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you cool. can, if you see sort of pictures of that, because uh, whale watching is, for killer whales is becoming more and more popular in mm-hmm. New Zealand and Australia. Um, if you look at the pictures that they have, that's actually the nice thing about the Southern Hemisphere orca. They are really easy to tell apart from photos. Well, you can look because we have tons of uh, stories from down there, which is great. So... Mm-hmm. You can just check um, check the Australian killer whale category uh, on our page. Um, something I did want to say from earlier, and Sarah, you can move this if not, if you want to or not, but um, when, Nick, when you were talking about big transient killer whales off of our coast, um, if anybody was wondering, they do are, transient killer whales are also the ones that you would see in California as well as Alaska, but they're not usually the same ones that we know of, so... There are like the resident transient local bigs whales um, that are in the Salish Sea and off of the coast of British Columbia. There are also Alaskan killer whales, which are technically mammal eaters. And those there are also California killer whales who are technically mammal eaters. Like they're also called transients or bigs, but they are live in California and they're ID differently, which I'm sure we'll get into one day, uh, how you ID killer whales. But just so if anyone was wondering... Those are all transients. Like every once in a while, we get California transients up here or Alaska transients. Um, but they usually, they're, they stick in their locations. So probably like another 50 years from now, we're going to have, I don't know, 25, 30 different ecotypes. Um, I should also say, because we'll include this in the show notes as well, uh, all of the information that we just shared on these ecotypes comes from two main sources. There is a beautiful illustrative poster that Noah put together a couple of years ago that has some of these kind of fast facts on it. But there was also a very long but very good research literature review article published in 2012 called killer whale ecotypes is there a global model 
spoiler alert, no, there's not. <laughs> oh my god, I can't yeah. believe you just spoiled this article for me. Now what am I going to do with my Saturday night? Oh. But it, it's a really great article, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes, because you can actually read the whole article for free. Ooh, open excellent. source or like open access science. Good job. Yay. Cool. Well, that was a great, long, fascinating discussion about ecotypes. Um, and it was long because it's very confusing and none of them are the same. It's nothing. It's not something we can say of like, there are 11 and they're just decided by where they live. Like, that's not how it works. I didn't really say anything about social structures for any of the Southern Hemisphere. because Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that we do know is that all orcas, uh, are threatened, not necessarily, like, officially, because we don't know how many there are (laughs) in a population, but all animals in the ocean are threatened, um, some, and obviously to various degrees, but something you can do to help all the orcas and cetaceans and marine animals in the world are pretty simple. You can, um, eat sustainable seafood. There's lots of great links. We'll put some in the show notes to OceanWise or Seafood Watch. You can work to reduce your ocean noise if you are on the water in any way, on a boat, um, or um, dealing with a large shipping container or something for some reason. I don't know, but that's something you should uh, always look into. If you do go whale watching, um, as we mentioned last in our last episode, be sure to be whale-wise for all animals um, off of the uh, coast of BC and uh, Washington in the Salish Sea. New regulations have now started for the southern resident killer whales, 400 meters at all times. And for, um, for all killer whales, unless you are a whale watching company that has gotten a certificate to go closer 200 meters um, to the other killer whales, which would be the big killer whales in this situation. So if you're going to go whale watching, wherever you go, look into the whale watching company beforehand and make sure they're following either the formal regulations off uh, our coasts or... The, just the guidelines that exist all over the world to make sure that whales and humans are being safe in the water. Some other things you can do, because quickly you can minimize your toxins and your pollutants. There's lots of chemical issues uh, with killer whales because they are top apex predators. So um, they eat fish, which is contaminated, or they eat marine mammals, which is contaminated. There's lots of different stuff we could talk about with that. So minimizing... Uh, we can't really do anything about PCBs and stuff that are already exist in the world because the 70s happened and that's how it is. <laughs> um, but you can um, look into making, uh, reducing your chemical use even in your household, just like um, minimizing your chemical use in with your cleaners, making your own, all that kinds of stuff. And all of those um, suggestions, of course, are in our What You Can Do page which we will always put in the show notes. There's some uh, a link to some clean uh, recipes that you can make for cleaning your bathroom and tiles and all that kind of stuff. Now we're going to lead into Nicole's favorite part because she gets to sing her little song. Fun flipper facts, it's fun flipper facts, fun flipper facts, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh huh. It's going to change every time. I think that's going to be an exciting <laughs> part of the episode. Okay. I like it. I look forward to it. Yes, it's fun flipper fact time, ladies and gents. And today we're talking about genetics. Ooh. Ooh. But it's going to be fun, I promise. And also a little bit short. So this all stems from when I was doing research for last episode's fun flipper fact about twins. I came across a story in uh, one of John Ford, who is a killer whale researcher here in British Columbia, in one of the books that he had written about possible twins in the northern resident population. 
Um, the mother was I-15. These animals don't all have nice, fun, cute, common nicknames. So I-15 is just I-15. And she was thought to have given birth to twins, a male and a female. I-4 was the female and I-41 was the male. The numbers are all kinds of crazy with these animals. Uh, But she was thought to have given birth to them in 1980, long before we were doing any kind of genetic testing with these animals. So nobody knew for sure. All they knew was there was a mom, I-15, who all of a sudden had two young calves, I-4 and I-41. This would have been really crazy and absolutely earth-shattering news because not only Mm. are twins as we discussed super rare but if they are born not both of them survive ever yeah it's never been known to happen so when i came across this i was like why don't more people know about this and why isn't it the famousest story (laughs) (laughs) i quickly found out it's because they weren't and we know that because we've done genetic testing for who's your daddy and also who's your mommy for almost all of the residents both northern and southern and a lot of the bigs as well in the north pacific so what we now know is that i-41 the male was i-15's genetic offspring but i-4 the female was just adopted Nobody knows what happened oh. to her mommy. Uh, she was gone very, very early in life from all reports. And I-15 just kind of said, well, come on. I got a baby already. You can hang out with me. Wow. Cool. So they were, like, raised as twins, yes. but not genetically twins. Yes. Cool. Oh, kind of fun. And uh, in sad but kind of interesting follow-up to that, I-15 died in 2006. Uh, she was very old at the time um but so did i-41 her genetic son oh yeah hmm. so they both died in, at the end he would have been 26 at that time so oh. he, they both died the same year so it's That's not so like cool. she was still you know actively yeah, nursing him or anything him like that mm-hmm. but it does go to show how strong those bonds really really are yeah. I four yeah. though, happy story, still kicking. She was seen early this year by surveying teams who go out to kind of track the populations of northern residents. Now, I wanted to share sort of a, a genetic testing part to this fun flipper fact because it's only thanks to genetics that we know that I4 and I41 were not genetically born twins. So, Lindsay, Sarah, how do you get DNA from an orca? Oh, I know, I know. Um, I'm going to guess either harpoon skin tags or poop. Ooh. Or both. Ooh, good guesses. Lindsay? It's skin tags, because you can't always tell whose poop is poop, because they're too close together. Although maybe you can if you have their genetics, like, I don't know, like CSI Probably. style. That's my guess, but I don't well, know if it's that advanced. And it's not always by harpoon. Those of you who are listening who happen to be avid crossbow users, you could have a future in genetic testing for whales. Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Like, (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's usually a recurve crossbow, actually, that's fitted with a specific tag that has a stainless steel, typically a uh, biopsy tip on it, and then also a stainless steel flange, I like that word, uh, to prevent the biopsy tip from going too deep into the whale. It only goes 25 millimeters. So awesome. they have a floating part of the tag attached. So you take your crossbow, you aim, you fire, it shoots, it punches. There's a little part of the biopsy tip that actually holds on to the tissue sample that has been taken so that doesn't just float away. And then the whole dart floats and after the whale has gone off, hopefully thinking nothing more than, you know, a weird mosquito got <laughs> um, you go and you pick up your tag and you do your DNA test. Cool. That's super fun. So that was this month's fun flipper fact. And next month it's going to be even more exciting because it's time for our first Patreon poll. So if you don't know already, we do have a Patreon. Um, the links are in the show notes. Uh, and you can join us for as little as a dollar a month. And one of the things that you get is you're going to get to vote in our upcoming poll that will be launched today uh, when podcast this podcast goes live. Um, and you're going to get to vote on some options about what we should talk about next. Um, this will be something that we're going to do probably sporadically as we go along uh, and then maybe uh, regular, more regularly as we get uh, a more set schedule and maybe do some more uh, episodes per month. So that is very exciting and look for that in your emails if you're a patron and if you want to vote so you can find out some super cool facts about something random or something generic. I don't even know. Um, you should join us at patreon.com slash whaletales. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, so now let's move into our storytelling part of the podcast. Uh, because it's Orca Awareness Month, we decided we would tell um, a great uh, story about a great place in British Columbia that um, is, I think, well, I've never been there, but it's really important to Lindsay and Nicole, and I'm very jealous. So, um, <laughs> in off the coast or on the coast of northern Vancouver Island, on the inside coast, is a place called Telegraph Cove, and Telegraph Cove was the first location of a killer whale commercial killer whale whale watching operation. Um, they opened in 1980, and they were taking people out to look at the northern resident killer whales. Um, in that area, it's really, really close to uh, Johnson Strait, which is like a narrow um, part between Vancouver Island, a bunch of little islands, and the mainland of British Columbia. And it's a really well-known place for killer whales to uh, migrate through. And it's also the home of the Robson Bight Ecological Reserve, which is where... Um, killer whales are known to rub on these rocks which is kind of like a neat kind of really unexpected local killer whale behavior so mm -hmm. for all these reasons telegraph cove um i guess was it's a tiny tiny town like i think 20 people live there permanently um it was a fishing village and in the 80s when fishing was you know not as great of an industry as it had been in the past i think some people were looking at how they could um, diversify their income and whale watching was it and so yeah Telegraph Cove was like the great starting point for um, a huge amount of knowledge in addition to ecotourism about uh, the northern resident killer whales and um, yeah like tons of research is still done up mm -hmm. out of that area 
by lots of um, government and uh, private and citizen science groups as well. So um, I think Telegraph Grove is like a really great um, example of like how a community can be really connected to the world around them. So that's why I like Telegraph Cove. Um, so Lindsay, do you want to tell, start telling our uh, whale tales killer whale story today? Yeah. So Nicole and I went uh, to Telegraph Cove in 2010 with a couple of our other friends. We went for a birthday um, and it was not a surprise. It was supposed to be a surprise, but it was spoiled, but that's fine because we still <laughs> had a great time. Um, so we drove up there and uh, we spent a night there before we went in to we went whale watching and we spent the night in Port McNeil which is another fishing place and it's also very small it was we were in a very small motel we went to the small motel bar or the small bar near the motel I don't remember um and we were the talk of the town because we were four women um don't worry this isn't a bad story we were just four (laughs) women in a town that people didn't know and it was September so um, like whale watching season is pretty strong still in September there. It is a, uh, a little bit later. It starts later up there. Uh, obviously, if you think about it, at least from the humpback perspective, if they're migrating north, they're going to be here before they get up there. That's how time works. Um, <laughs> uh, so we were there and everybody paid a lot of attention to us, which was a little bit strange. Um, <laughs> but we heard lots of really weird stories from lumberjacks who wanted who were trying to pick us up. Um <laughs> which was an interesting experience. Um, but it was still a great time. We had a great time um, that night and we had a great time whale watching. Uh, one of the things I think that Nicole would agree with me with the crazy parts were when you go whale watching, if you go whale watching out of Vancouver, uh, unless you're super lucky, it takes you like an hour, an hour and a half of just boat driving until you see anything of excitement. You might see a harbor porpoise if you're really paying attention. Um, but up there, it was like, Five minutes? Yeah. And they're like, oh, there's that humpback that's been hanging around. <laughs> Whatever. We're not going to stay and watch them because who cares? It's just a humpback. Tra la 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 la. Because I and... was working as a whale watch naturalist part time at this time in my life, the I was obviously very excited to see the cetaceans, but I was also insanely jealous yeah. about how much easier the naturalist on our mm-hmm. boat had it than I did. Yeah, because you don't, they don't have to entertain you, entertain guests of for an hour and a half of blank ocean. Each way. Um, Each yeah. way. And it's sometimes much longer than that, as I know you have stories about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we went out there, we saw some humpbacks, we saw some other things that you would see if you're on a boat in any part of British Columbia, which I don't really find that exciting anymore, but I'm sure other people will, like eagles. So many bald eagles. <laughs> Just, just um, all the bald eagles. All the bald eagles. And it's very beautiful up there. And I, um, But then, of course, we got to the point of this story, the point of our whale watching, which was the northern resident killer whales. Um, so, Nick, you want to tell us a little bit more about those guys? Yes, I do. Uh, so we came across the A30s. Um, this is a matriline that's part of A-Clan in the Northern Resident Community, and they are a pretty much the most common matriline that you see in Johnson Strait when you're whale watching up there. They're very, very well known. A30 was the matriarch when we saw them back in 2010. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2012, but her name was Sitka, or I think it's pronounced Sitka. 
Um, it's a First Nations name, and I don't 100% know the pronunciation, so apologies if I have butchered that as well. Uh, but she was there along with her offspring uh, and all the way down to her grandchildren. And so that was very, very cool for us to see. Uh, some of the famous individuals from this population that we saw not only included Sitka, but also... Uh, the new matriarch of the A30s, now that Sitka has passed away, her daughter Cleo, who's A50, uh, who was born in 1984, and also A72, Cleo's uh, calf, who's named Bend. And this, when you look at the pictures that we'll put up from this story, you can tell Bend apart very, very easily from all of the other orca we saw, because Bend has a cut on a very distinct and large cut on the front edge of its dorsal fin. I don't remember whether Ben is a male or a female. Um, so you can see that really distinctly in a lot of the pictures that we have from this. And they were awesome, as killer whales always are. They were spending a lot of their time foraging and traveling, but we did get one breach, and Julie, one of our friends who was with us, actually managed to catch that it's not well centered in the photo frame, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> we did actually get. Julie was the only one of us at the time who had a really fancy camera, so we were all kind of like, "Ooh, Julie, go, go, go!" And so she managed to catch a picture of the breach. There was lots of spy hopping going on in the group, and in particular, it was really cool to see was there was a period of time where two of the orca, I do not know who either of them were, were double spy hopping facing each other like you would picture yeah. in a comic of mm -hmm. these animals having a conversation out of the water Aww. so if you picture a comic panel of killer whales <laughs> that's what it would look like <laughs> oh i was just gonna say i think one of the other things that was really great for us was that one of our friends had never seen killer whales before she was from australia she didn't really know what had she didn't really have a lot of experience with um being on the water off of our coast and so she was incredibly excited to see them. And, you know, like every time you see killer whales, it's exciting. Every time you see whales in the wild, uh, it's very exciting. Um, but I think <laughs> even for us, like we were never, we're not jaded. We were never jaded. Uh, and we were never like, oh, it's just killer whales, whatever. But I think there was a whole other level of excitement for her, which I think was really special for all of us to enjoy. There is a little sort of, uh, call to action as it were for our listeners here with this story because I have spent a lot of time trying to identify the animals that we saw on this trip. Um, I tried to do so back in 2010. I've tried to do so for a couple of weeks leading up to recording this episode of this podcast. And there is one male in this group who honestly, we have no idea who it was. I cannot find this animal in any record, any catalog of the Northern Residents, which is surprising to me because he has a very distinct dorsal fin. Um, it almost looks like two bites were taken out of the very, very tip of his dorsal fin. We all came up with the nickname for him on board our vessel of Dumbledore because he had a huge dorsal fin. It was a little bit wavy and it kind of looked like a wizard's hat. And, you know, 2010 was really peak Harry Potter for all of us. And so every time that he surfaced near the vessel, we were like, Dumbledore! <laughs> but honestly, and I've asked friends who were naturalists up in the with the Northern Residence, 
Nobody can tell me who this whale is. So we're going to put up a picture of him. I would love to know. It's like the great unsolved mystery of my whale watch career. So please help us identify Dumbledore. So if you this gets you super excited about hearing all kinds of great killer whale stories, uh, you can check out over 300 killer whale stories on our website. If you go to whale-tales.org, you can check out any kind of species. But if you go to whale tales uh, website and then uh, on the left-hand side, you will be able to search or find links to all of our killer whale stories, which is great. I There's so many of them, it makes me really happy. And we've got stories about killer whales all over the world. Yep, I just put up three more today. One from Japan. Ooh. Yeah, so crazy. that was super fun. Yeah, yeah. from the whale watcher, uh, our storyteller, Christina, from Norway, who sends us Norway killer whale stories. She went to Japan and saw Japan killer whales. So something else we wanted to talk about right before we wrap up here is that um, we are ending June. We're ending Orca Awareness Month, but we're leading into another month of celebrations on social media, which is Plastic Free July. Um, Plus Free July was started in Perth in 2011, and it's a mission to dramatically reduce plastic use and improve recycling. Uh, They have a vision for a plastic-free world. And so you can take the pledge. We'll take a link. We'll post the link in the show notes and also on our social media. Um, And so you can work uh, pledge to reduce your plastic use in July and all uh, across the year. And remember, for something that uh, I really want to get across is that you cannot fail at Plastic Free July. You cannot fail at reducing your plastic use. Um, you can use Plastic Free July to reduce and reuse your um, and become aware of the plastic you're using. Uh, I wrote some really, um, uh, it's really good, I'm just going to say that, <laughs> blog posts um, on another website that we have. Uh, about Plastic Free July last year, and I'll be writing some more this year, so we'll link to those. You can read them um, just about sneaky plastic offenders that you might not think about in your house and easy ones to replace or to uh, reuse, and just about, like, looking around in your house and at your waste and looking at what plastic you're actually using and throwing out or recycling every day and seeing what you can do to change that, whether it be something like... Um, like plastic free always makes people stop and get nervous, but like, just think about something like if you still have to buy plastic, could you buy one large piece of plastic instead of two or three or four small pieces of plastic? Like something along even those lines, could you switch to hard plastic from soft plastic? Could you do anything like that? Just something that you could do to change, to reduce your overall plastic use as opposed to trying to go completely cold turkey and then it's really, really hard. Uh, especially living in the world that we live in because plastic is everywhere and you can't do um, a lot about some of it. So um, that's just something to think about as we head into July. Um, And we do have some tips to share personally. Uh, Who wants to go first? Um, I can go. So on Lindsay's uh, topic of awareness, so I know in uh, one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how London Drugs here locally is recycling soft plastic and like, that's great, but recycling's not perfect. But one thing that's separating my recyclable soft plastic from my other garbage and like actually seeing it is means I know um, the kinds of things that I am buying in soft plastic. And so that is like a great awareness thing for me to like think about how I could um, avoid 
those or like have alternatives to those plastic um, sources. And but my favorite thing that uh, we all started doing recently um, was, you know, when you go to the movies and you go to a 3D movie and they give you glasses and then you recycle the glasses like there's nothing wrong with those glasses. So I just kept a pair. And now I just reuse them every time I go to a 3D movie. It's like, I I don't know why this isn't a thing. Apparently, I was looking to see if you could like buy 3D glasses or whatever. Like, I don't know why. Or I was like trying to find out if this was a thing. In some places, if you don't bring your own 3D glasses, they charge you an extra dollar. I think it, I forget where that was. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So now, and like, it's a thing we started doing it, I think, last year when we saw The Meg. Super good movie, guys. Check out our other podcast, Nature Finds a Way. Listen about that. Anyway, um, we did it and now we just kind of just send reminders. Like when I, like I have them sitting on my dresser. I'm staring at them right now. And when I, because we buy movie tickets in advance almost all the time, we uh, just, I just like set a reminder and then I send Sarah a text or Sarah Nicole or whoever we're going to the movies with to be like, don't forget your glasses. Yeah. And then we do. And that saves the soft plastic that they're wrapped in, the just the use. And then I know that sometimes they get washed and all that stuff. But you just have to be careful because I have my pair sitting in sort of we have this little like slot near the exit door of our house. You have to be careful that your husband doesn't take them accidentally thinking they're sunglasses and then drive away wearing them. <laughs> Yes. Because, <laughs> no. yeah, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> so who wants to go next? I will go. So so my tips all tend now to be about how you can reuse, reduce, recycle as a mom, because that's my life. And uh, as all moms out there know, as soon as your baby starts eating solid food, you must have solid food with you at all times because they get hungry all the time and so you have pounds and pounds and pounds of snacks anytime you leave the house and often I have found that when you're trying to buy these from the store they all come in plastic bags which is like Lindsay you're saying sometimes it's really hard to get away from plastic I have yet to find any child's snack that doesn't come in some kind of plastic when you buy it from the store however you can buy a lot of them in bulk so that's what I started doing. Uh, just like you were saying, Sarah, can you get one instead of two? Um, and so I started buying them in bulk and I got some really, really cute reusable Ziplocs. They're not Ziplocs, but they're kind of reusable snack bags and sandwich bags uh, made by the same company that makes the cloth diapers that I use for my son. Um, so they're in really cute patterns and prints and they're super easy to wash. You can even throw them in your dishwasher if you want. So I use those to make sure that we are always snacked up for my little monster eater of a son. <laughs> he wants food all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and snack bags work for everybody. Um, Sarah and I got some for Christmas, birthday, something. Uh, they're Harry Potter themed because we're still nerds after all this time. Um, and I use them all the time at work. People look at me. They're like, what are you? Like, first of all, because I'm eating like those baked pea snack things. And they're like, what are you eating? And what are you eating out of? I'm like, oh, this is they're just baked peas in my um, Marauder's Map themed snack bag. What? <laughs> Um, and those are really, I just rinse them because they just have crumbs in them and I use them for those and trail mix and all sorts of different things. So snack bags are not just for babies. 
Um, and one other thing I just wanted to say uh, for uh, as we head into Plastic Free July is it's the small things still do count. There's been a lot of um, talk recently about how straws are not actually that big a deal, which is completely wrong. Um, I think people are just angry about it and I'm not really sure why I don't want to get into controversy about straws I know it's not a perfect option of banning straws there are definitely issues with it but it just because you see images of different kinds of pollution in the oceans doesn't mean that straws are still not an issue not only in the oceans but also just in the facts of garbage dumps and recycling um can Canadians use 50 million straws a day but like there's only 30-something million Canadians, like... I know, uh, and that's that's how crazy it is. And, like, and that number's old. Like, I know last year was a really big year for banning straws, so I'm sure that number has gone down. Um, but I think that straws were a really hot topic last year. They were very trendy, and now it's less so, and I'm not really sure why. But there's still a big issue, and there's still a very easy thing to stop using... Um, as if you are able to, um, reusable straws, even, and I know people like get all uppity about it, but if you buy a hard plastic straw that is still less plastic than using a, like, sorry, a hard plastic reusable straw, that's still less plastic than using a straw for 10 minutes and then throwing it out and then buying another one. As always, we'll have all of this and more on the What You Can Do page link in our show notes. And you can also find it on our website under Tales of Saving Wheels. And it's really just a great list of small things that you can do every day to help cetaceans, marine life, and the planet. You can also find links to subscribe to our podcast on the left-hand side of our website. You you can subscribe through your podcast catcher of choice, of course, and you can also listen directly on our website. Nice. Other awesome things on our website include a link to our merch. We, you can find us on Redbubble, and there you can check out our amazing shirts, mugs, stickers, bags, reusable grocery bags even, and more. If you're looking for a way to support us and the work that we do, you can also head to our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you can vote in the polls like we've talked about to decide uh, what the next thing for our fun flipper fact is that we're going to research. And you'll also get a shout out on social media, plus lots of other fun and exciting rewards that we have coming up soon. We have some big dreams for their future episodes, and we can't do it without you, so please check it out. We're very excited to grow this community. Yeah, and if you can't support us on Patreon, uh, you can always support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or anywhere else you can review podcasts. It helps other people find our podcasts and also lets us know what you think of us. This is our third episode, um, so we would love to hear your feedback. Yeah, you can always find follow us on social media at whaletales.org on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And you can search for podcast-specific info by using the hashtag whaletalespodcast. And last, we promise, but definitely not least, on our website, you can share your stories. That's really why we exist. Remember, it's not a big deal. It's not scary. You don't have to be an expert. But if you've seen a whale, dolphin, or porpoise, we want to hear about it. And we want to add your story to our library. So click on the share link. And you can also share it on social media if that's easier for you. We just want to hear about what happened. Yeah, um, we're super excited to hear all of your stories. And if this was a lot of information in a very short period of time, uh, don't worry. You can find all the links to everything we've just said on our website, which is whales, sorry, which is whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Uh, Plus, you can pursue our library of over 500 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories, including those 300 killer whale stories we just talked about. Uh, So yeah, check those, check everything out on our website. Thanks again for listening and supporting us. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia. 
my favorite thing. Thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great day. Actually, that's my favorite thing. <laughs>